listening to Growl, a brand new show here at the Greylock Glass. Sixth, two thousand sixteen. You're listening to the very first episode of Growl, the program that invites you to get your hackles up about the issues that matter to the planet and society. I'm your host, Jason Velasquez, and I thank you for tuning in. The name Growl is an offshoot of my alternate personality as DJ Mongrel of the podcast The Mongrels Howl, in hibernation low these ten long years. That our very first guest is named Wolf is a serendipitous added bonus that I'll gladly take. I first heard Richard Wolf speak on an episode of Alternative Radio entitled Capitalism, Fantasies, and Realities. I was, I thought at the moment that the show came on, not in the mood to hear another dry diatribe against an economic system that has so obviously blown a gasket. The facts were plain. The evidence was all around us, and yet such a tiny fraction of the American population seemed to have a clue that I couldn't fathom how another academic exploration of the subject was going to do anybody any good. And I had to admit to my shame that I wasn't yet familiar with the work of Richard Wolff as co-founder of Democracy at Work, or his scholarship as Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, where he taught economics from 1973 to 2008. Nor was I aware of his position as visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs at the New School University in New York. Some days I wonder what, if anything, I do know. Of course, I don't recall David Barsamyan or his featured guests and speakers ever letting me down, so I made up my mind to give the program five minutes to convince me. Well, I only needed 90 seconds. The lecture was exactly what I needed to hear. Laugh out loud, if at times gallows humor, softens the dizzyingly broad and deep trajectory of the economic tour Richard Wolff takes the audience on at breakneck speed. The humor, however, does nothing to blunt the edge of the tools that he uses to dissect the beast that is a winner-take-all capitalism that cares little about the empty shells left behind that were once people, communities, and even countries. On the basis of that one-hour program, I knew I had to have Richard on as a guest of some show here at the Greylock Glass. More importantly, his words and the excellent delivery of the thoughts contained helped me to realize that I'd been waging a war within myself and that the battleground was the Greylock Glass. I had been infected with the myth of objective journalism long ago and was still trying to create a media outlet that represented the fulcrum of the seesaw. I began to see, beginning with that episode of AR, that the earth doesn't need any more well-intentioned but misguided information delivery technicians. The machine of objective journalism had been allowing wholesale social and environmental atrocities for decades under the guise of impartiality. Truthfully, I'd been feeling the pull of advocacy journalism for a while and had in fact been drifting in that direction off and on. Well, after spending some time talking with Dr. Wolf during our interview, I began to mull over the idea that my own particular mission was to use the Greylock Glass to help drag news and issues reporting back as much to the left as possible, if only so that the body of content as a whole isn't quite so far to the right of center all the time. The outcome of all that hand-wringing? Well, I embraced my inner critical theorist and accepted the reality that this publication was always destined to champion underdog progressive social causes anyway. The other upshot of our conversation is that Richard invited me to carry his weekly radio show, Economic Update with Richard Wolf, on our live streaming channel, 
And I'm honored to make this fascinating look at the economic issues of the day available to you, our listeners, and hope that you'll let us know what you think. We're airing the program weekly on Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and repeating it on Monday at 2 p.m. Give it a listen on our live streaming page. What you're listening to now, however, Growl, is the embodiment of that decision that I made to consciously abandon an unattainable standard of objectivity. Some of my guests will share my viewpoints, and some will be tenaciously opposed to them, but all will know where I stand on the issue at hand. I hope you enjoy this unapologetic new offering from the Greylock Glass, and I'm proud to introduce, as our first guest, Dr. Richard Wolfe. Richard Wolf, it's really great having you on the Greylock Glass. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's um, it's great that uh, we have a, I guess, what are we going to call you, a, an honorary uh, resident of the Berkshires uh, here with Yeah. I am certainly honored to be uh, somebody who has lived a good part of my life in the uh, eastern part, if I can say it. Sure. Uh, over by Greenfield and that part of Western Mass. But it's a beautiful part of the of the country, and I've been very happy uh, having a time to spend there, partly as a professor at UMass in Amherst, and partly at a home that my in-laws purchased years ago to take advantage of the beauty. Yeah, in the foothills of the Berkshires. Um, the uh, the time that you spent at UMass, uh, we might as well talk a little bit about that, because um, UMass is is such a powerhouse, an educational powerhouse, and has been for years over in Amherst. Um, when did you start there? I began as a professor of economics in 1973, and I taught there continuously until 2008. So it's uh, 35 years. 35 years. What uh, I'm guessing that probably you've seen some changes in not just the the technology and and thing but also probably student attitudes uh in 35 years yes it, it was a very interesting piece of american history that this college or university represented like so many state universities it really didn't exist that way until after world war ii before that it had been mostly a farming college that is it was an institution designed to help farmers with technical problems of growing crops and raising animals and so on. Uh, And it didn't go very far beyond that. After World War II, when the war was over, and the combination of the government's support for people, things like the GI Bill of Rights that sent all the returning soldiers uh, to school at the government's expense, you had a generation of young people beginning to have children who wanted a college education in a way that the mass of Americans never thought would be in their lives. College was something uh, for rich people, uh, almost exclusively. So you had, for example, in Amherst, the very old, the very established, and the very expensive Amherst College, which was too small to accommodate the people of Massachusetts in any mass way. They couldn't have afforded it anyhow. And so you had the state step in and build, at public expense, a huge university that could accommodate a flood of young people um, in a new part of the state in western Massachusetts uh, for this sort of thing, and hiring large numbers of faculty, myself included, uh, to basically make an experiment, very democratic with a small d, Uh, An experiment in giving higher education to the mass of the middle class, let's call it, that had not been in the habit of sending kids to college uh, ever in American history before that. And so we had some of the benefits of that kind of pioneering program in affordable mass higher education. And it was a very uh, good time to be a professor. You had people who really appreciated the learning process, who were new to it. Many of my students were the first in their family ever to go to college. And they had both the the naivete, if you like, but also the enthusiasm and the honesty of wanting to make the most of this experience. And having taught at Yale University before, 
where everybody was very well off and thought of their teachers as another variety of servant, uh, going to <laughs> UMass from there was a wonderfully better place to be a professor, and the students were much more committed to learning uh, than they had been at Yale. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Now, can you imagine um, something like UMass being created today? No. Uh, in fact, halfway through my time there, we went from expanding and innovative and new and exciting to the exact reverse, cutbacks. I remember they started with uh, Governor Dukakis uh, years ago in Massachusetts, uh, but then Republicans and Democrats alike cutting the budget, cutting the program, uh, raising the part of the fees that the students and their families had to pay rather than making it the experiment in public higher education. So yeah, it was kind of a, a sharp switch in the whole approach from the expansion of these opportunities to the contraction. And unfortunately, it's been that way for the last 30 years. Yeah, does it? And it's you know, it's not just Massachusetts. You know, no, tu tuition no. is going up all over the country, and it is becoming uh, to the point where uh, people's incomes. It's actually a really neat formula because it's almost it's very simple for your parents to make too much money for you to get any aid. Um, I've noticed that that is a sort of a formula for for how much aid you get. If your parents still have a house and they both are, and they're both employed, it's it's tough to get any real aid. But that doesn't mean that they can actually afford to help you with school, as the tuitions and cost of books and everything is is rising. Yes, and 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 let me tell you from my own very intimate personal experience, when I began at UMass, most of the students. Um, got through four years getting their bachelor's degree uh, with little or no debt. If they did have some debt, it was modest. It really was. Uh, they could work a little bit to make some money. They often did that in the summer times. Uh, but they didn't come out with a degree coupled to tens of thousands of dollars of debt. And it makes an enormous difference. In the last 10 years of my time at UMass, uh, there was barely a week that went by without a student coming into my office. We'd have that typical chat for 10 minutes where he or she would talk about a term paper or an exam or ask for something to be explained, all the usual and appropriate things. And then we'd be done with that question and conversation. And I would notice a little hesitancy for the young man or woman to leave the office. And Having been a teacher all my life, I said, oh, well, you know, what else is on your mind? I always like to talk to students, get a feeling for the people that I see in the classroom uh, uh, each week. And then it would come, sometimes with tears. And the tears as often with the young men as with the young women. And the tears were always about the same thing. They just had a conversation with mom or dad who informed them that the money for the next semester just wasn't there. Either mom had lost her job or dad had had to go to part-time from full-time work or somebody had gotten sick or something else, the normal parts of life. Hmm. But these were people who hadn't any extra and they now couldn't. And this young student was looking at me, asking for advice, having poured themselves into studies for two or three years, having already racked up considerable debt. What could they do? They didn't want to borrow even more. They were terrified by what they already owed. On the other hand, to walk away halfway through college, that didn't seem to make any sense either. And of course, I had no solution because this is a social problem. It's not the fault of a young person, but there's not really much a professor can do. I did the best I could, but it was crystal clear to me that the anxieties, the upset, the fear that this could happen even if it actually didn't. All of these things interfered with the educational process, weakened what we could do for students, weakened the attention they could bring to their studies. This was a society, it became very clear to us, this was a society that was shooting itself in the foot because it had short-term economic problems. It was crippling a higher education system at the same time that we would be giving lectures in our economics class, 
that the United States was part of a world economy and that the future of the United States would depend, above all, on the quality and the quantity of its trained labor force. And we were professors in a place that was crippling that very process that would shape America's future. The absurdity of it was not lost on us. This smells a lot like the 90s. Is this about what, uh, roughly when the, the peak of this is? Yes, we, we, we really went through it then, but it hasn't stopped. It, it continues. The cutbacks were made, you know, the reduction in the library budget. Uh, we couldn't have two copy machines. We had to have one. You know, it, it was nickel and diming as well as raising the students' fees. It meant, for example, what I found most scandalous was that fewer and fewer of the classes that we were teaching were taught by those of us who were senior tenured faculty. We wouldn't hire. We weren't given the money to hire the people we needed. So more and more, it was graduate students who taught the undergraduate students. Now, by itself, that's not a disaster, but it isn't the same thing. They don't, they, they're young people. They haven't had the experience. And I always used to wonder how many families in Massachusetts and the other states that send students to UMass are aware that in department after department, budgetary considerations, because that's all it was, was driving a change in the size of the class and in the instructor of the class from small classes to large and from seasoned, experienced teachers to young, inexperienced teachers, graduate students, who were very busy writing doctoral dissertations or getting through graduate school, and that limited the time and attention they can give. You can see where this is going. This is a university system that is undermining itself, and you're absolutely right. It was not at all unique to UMass. It was literally being replicated uh, across the 50 states. And as you're saying this, you know, what comes to mind is that it is also being replicated in corporate America as well. The same sorts of things happen. Um, you know, there may be a layoff and then they, they may hire again, but they're part-time jobs or they're temp positions, you know, day, you know, basically, you know, short-term right. contracts. Um, I, I worked for a great, for quite a while in publishing and it used to be that books in, in educational publishing, which I still do from time to time to, to make ends meet here. But the, the thing is, it used to be that the large publishers, I mean, the Houghton Mifflins, the Harcourts, the Macmillans, um, they all had seasoned editors running, running books. I mean, they, they would build the books. Um, and then over time, especially in the, from the mid to late 90s forward, uh, more and more, they would either farm it out to um, developers, you know, companies that uh, that basically just, you know, put things together, um, these books together, or they would just rely on freelancers. So it seems like it is being mirrored in different industries wherein they say, you know what, we could do it cheaper if we could just get rid of the people with experience and uh, expertise. Absolutely. And the university is... Is not the only place that this is happening, but it's happening with a vengeance. While I was at UMass, for example, we were suddenly told that we had to go to seminars to learn about something dubbed, get ready, you'll love this, distance learning. Well, it turned out that what distance learning meant was that a person could sit anywhere in his or her home and turn on the computer and get a lecture from a professor about just about anything. And that, therefore, we didn't need very many professors anymore because you got one, you recorded what he or she had to say in the way of a set of lectures, and then you could play and replay them for, for 20 years for all you care, never having to pay that professor a salary anymore, having this all canned and replicated uh, in this way. And I'm not saying that there aren't some ways and some circumstances in which that can be useful, but that's not what education is. Education is an intense, personal back and forth in which what you convey to a student is not just in what you say, but in how you respond to his or her questions. Uh, it's your body language. It's your expression. Uh, it's all the things that make a teacher 
uh, memorable for a student, and we all had the, the few that were important in our lives. It was a terrible uh, cutback in the in the quality and, and the quantity of it all. But it's also part of our economic system. We live in a, in a capitalist system where every capitalist is uh, driven by the laws of competition in the market to constantly do what they like to call save on labor expenses. Now, basically, that's a fancy way of saying either reduce the number of people you employ or pay them less, or if you're really clever and, and lucky, both at the same time. And that will leave you with more profits and so you can grow your business, etc. The only flaw in that argument, and it's a profound one, is that if all the capitalists are all the time doing that, cutting their workforces or cutting the salaries they pay, what you are doing is depriving the market of the other side of the game, namely the demand for the goods and services. The very capitalists who have saved on spending money on the working class then discover that the working class cannot afford to buy what they have so efficiently produced. In other words, they are cutting themselves off in one way by the very activity they engage in in the other way. Now, that's not their fault. That's the way this system works. But it should have long ago made us aware of and committed to discussing the problems with an economic system that works this way. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's it's clear that it, it's almost like you you can it's it's there's a you know there's a limit. It's there's a finite amount of of resources um, you know in terms of human labor, and there's a finite amount of resources in terms of you know the amount of of, of spending power of that labor, and it should not be a mystery but yet somehow that's the position that we're in today um was it was there some um are there smarter guys than 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 me who just know that they can come up with the the the, the jobs or the somewhere i mean i'm just i'm trying to figure out how this how we got to this point where nobody figured out that there was a, a fallacy at work here well i think quite a few people have over the years um they weren't very popular. People didn't want to hear this because it's a little frightening to confront that you have a system, whatever the system is, it could be a housing system or a transportation system or an education system, but in this case it's the economic system that is contradictory, that has mechanisms inside of it that make no sense and that we should confront because that's a bit of a scary notion that we've got a system that is flawed. So we do what people in those situations often do. It's not very admirable, but it's what people do. And we call it the practice of denial. You pretend it isn't there and hope that by pretending that, it will actually disappear. Of course, that doesn't work. And the way that presents itself in economics is what we call the business cycle. Every few years, businesses that have grown because they've saved on labor and made more profits and invested in their company, discover that they've expanded a company and they can't sell the output because the very people who would buy from them have either lost their jobs or gone on part-time or had their salary cut and therefore can't afford it. Uh, this is a tragic way to come up against this system. You think if it happens over and over again, and by the way, our capitalist system has an economic downturn every three to seven years, and it's been doing it for 200 years, so it's not as though I'm telling anybody anything that isn't well known. You might have thought that given that experience and knowing, for example, that on occasion these economic downturns can be awful, they can last a long time, they can throw out of work millions of people, the biggest one to this date, 1929 to 41, the Great Depression, and the second worst one we're in right now, the one since 2008, you'd think maybe denial might be uh, dissolving, breaking up, and coming to terms with, we got a system that's a problem, and indeed that is happening now, as it did in the 1930s, but it is sad that it has taken so long, that it has cost so much heartache and loss of jobs and, and deferred lives and educations 
for people to begin in significant numbers to recognize that we really have a system problem and there really is no shorthand, clever gimmick that's going to get us out of having to deal with that problem unless we're prepared to live in an economy that is taking away from most of us year by year uh, more and more. I mean, the stories are really grim. This is the first generation of college kids that are coming out of school with fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. We haven't begun to understand what that means in a society. We're beginning to see that people are postponing getting married. They're postponing or simply giving up on having children. They can't afford to buy their own home. Uh, These things will ramify and work their way through the society, but we, we are doing this left and right. The number of Americans with a pension has been collapsing now for 25 years. Public pensions are very weak and being cut back. Private pensions have shifted from what's called defined benefit, where you know what you're going to get when you retire, to something called defined contribution, where a certain amount of money is put in, but how much there'll be when you need it and retire, nobody knows, is dependent on the volatility of the stock market, etc. We are, you know, in a sense, and Americans feel this, we're being... Uh, bitten, if you like, by insects, and any one bite is small, but the accumulation of the bites, of the little this taken away and that taken away and the next thing taken away, it all adds up and it puts everyone in a vice of growing difficulty. And I don't think you can explain either the success of Mr. Trump on the right or of Mr. Sanders on the left without seeing that it is playing itself out, among other ways, in a disaffection from the old traditional political mouthpieces because they're too identified with what's not working and people are beginning to look, even if the people they're looking at are a little odd by at least the tradition of American politics, but that's what people want. They want something new and different because staying with the same old, same old is no longer an attractive uh, option. Right. I want to. I want to bring in these these uh, these characters onto uh, this stage in just a second. But I want to point out that um, you say that people are beginning to sort of notice this, and and I, I was thinking as I was doing some some of my homework for uh, for this show and. And it kind of, as, as it often does, as I start reading and I start going down one rabbit hole, rabbit trail, and then another rabbit trail. And I ended up back in the days of NAFTA. Uh, I was reading about the things that people were saying at the time uh, to sell the idea of the North Atlantic, was the North American Free Trade Agreement. And, and then the realities that we have seen played out over the last, was it, 25 years or more. Um, so, I mean, we were told that NAFTA was going to, what was it going to do? It was going to allow people south of the border uh, to get jobs that would allow them to buy our products. Therefore, we would have more jobs. I mean, that was basically what they said was going to happen. That's not what happened. And I think that people are finally saying, you know what? That didn't happen. Our economies, our communities are decimated. And now you're telling me that there's this new thing, which is a lot of people are calling NAFTA on steroids, called the TPP. And that, well, I mean, actually, they're not even talking about it because the thing, whole thing has been negotiated in secret most of the time. Um, what what do you know about that? Because I want to I talk about what it means. Uh, we'll look at the, the candidates through the lens of the TPP, but just give us a brief overview of what people at the minimum should know about it, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Absolutely. Let's start with the NAFTA because you're quite right to to root it in that history and it'll help people to understand. The North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, an agreement between uh, among the United States, Mexico and Canada, uh, was designed to allow the relatively free movement of money, of goods uh, from one part to the other and of people as well. Uh, and it was touted by the Clinton administration, which really pushed it through the Congress. It was Bill Clinton was the president uh, 
uh, who, who finished it off and made it happen. Uh, and it would be a benefit for everybody. Unfortunately, whenever the president, whoever he is, Republican, Democrat, and I should say now, whoever she may be as well, um, once they get behind it and they, their prestige is to get it passed, well, then it begins to lose all of its uh, vices and have only a stunning list of virtues. Everybody should never forget that because otherwise you will be taken in by what is pretty plain huckstering. Well, with NAFTA, it was the same thing. We would all be better off. It was a wonderful win-win-win situation, and only a crazy idiot would oppose it. That was the effort made, and unfortunately, it persuaded quite a few people enough to get it passed and to be signed by President Clinton. Okay, here's the reality, which I present to you only as a professional economist. Every trade agreement ever reached between two or more trading partners, countries, has winners and losers. If you are told that there are only winners, stop speaking to that person and go find somebody else because you're talking to the proverbial used car salesman whom you should be suspicious about and for good reason. Let me give you an example in the case of Mexico, and you'll see it's exactly the same with the TPP. One of the things we were told was that in Mexico, it would be great for American businesses because they could now move down into Mexico freely because of this agreement in a way that would have been more difficult or more expensive for them to do so. Okay, one, one of the companies that did that was Walmart. It moved on a massive way into Mexico, setting up its big department stores uh, on the model of what we know here in the United States. Well, how had goods and services been sold in Mexico before Walmart arrived with the NAFTA? Well, simply, lots and lots of little Mexican families would take a portion of their garage or their home if they didn't have a garage, and they would make it a storehouse for rice, for beans, perhaps for pots and pans, for t-shirts. In other words, every little Mexican village had dozens of families who were what we call merchants, small shopkeepers, small merchants, who made a living by buying these goods wholesale and reselling them to their friends and neighbors in the village uh, and making a living off the difference. When Walmart came in and built a big store, it could undercharge these little folks, and they were all driven out of business. Had Mexico had a boom as a result, which it didn't, maybe those millions of wiped-out small shopkeepers would have been able to stay in Mexico. But with the destruction of their way of life by the big, powerful, money-rich competitor from the north, Walmart, these people basically had the following choice. Stay in Mexico where you were born and were comfortable and had your family, friends, church, and community, uh, but with no income and therefore highly likely to be unspeakably poor, if not dead, or take your life in your hands and run across the border into Texas or New Mexico or Arizona looking for work in the much richer country of the North. To nobody's surprise, whoever thought this through, millions of the Mexicans people began to do exactly the latter. They came across the border in record numbers, desperate for the work they needed, and of course, willing to work wherever an American employer saw an opportunity to make more money by laying off a Native American who would have demanded a wage typical for that, and hiring instead a desperate Mexican or Central American, often without exactly the right papers to be here, and therefore doubly vulnerable. You get the picture. Mm. It's what happened. We have been wrestling with the immigration problem ever since. We've been wrestling with the social dislocations ever since. All of that is a result of NAFTA, but we still are told that somehow, by some magical calculation, which I have never seen, and I've looked, this is somehow all overwhelmed by the good things that happened, say, to the Walmarts of this world. Well, let's be fair. 
it was profitable for Walmart. Walmart's uh, owners, the Walm uh, Walton family and a few others, have become wildly rich billionaires in all the process. So yes, there were gainers from all of this, but you have to stack them against an immensely larger number of people who lost their whole livelihood, their home, their families, their connections. Uh, it's a sad story. TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is exactly the same game, only this time it's much larger. It's a collection of many countries that have one thing in common. They border on the Pacific Ocean, so they include many countries in Asia and many countries in Latin America as well as North America and Central America, all of whom have this shared uh, border on the Pacific Ocean. And they're cutting a deal. And guess what? Just like NAFTA, it's designed to allow a freer movement of money capital, of goods and services, and of people among these countries. And just like with NAFTA, there are companies that will gain from this, like Walmart gained from NAFTA because it could move into Mexico. But like I said, there are also many losers. And by the way, the losers are not just the mass of people. There are many companies that stand to lose because a competitor who can't come into the United States now because we don't have that kind of an agreement will be able to come here if the agreement is signed. And the American company facing that doesn't want the, the TPP. For example, the Ford Motor Company has already indicated it's against it. And the Ford Motor Company is a big, rich, billionaire company. So what we have is a fight between those interests that stand to gain from a NAFTA or a TPP and those industries that stand to lose. Each of them tries to persuade senators and members of the House of Representatives to vote either for it if you stand to gain or against it if you stand to lose. And both sides know that the votes of the representatives will also be affected by public opinion. So both sides hire economists like me, journalists like you, and many others to pump out the PR, to pump out the rationales, why it's a win-win if you want it, or it's a lose-lose if you're against it, and the mass of people are confronted with a barrage of publicity in the hope that one group of businesses prevails over the other. But for the mass of people, the outcome is murky. It is highly likely for millions to be very bad. It may, for others, be improvement. But the notion that this is anything other than a hustle by a group of businesses to get an advantage that is opposed by another group is a source of self-delusional make-believe that an adult with a bit of a brain ought not to indulge in. Mm. Now, of course, there is a lot of marketing of this idea and against this idea, but in reality, we don't know a lot about it, or at least it did not originally, because much of the negotiations were completely opaque. I mean, it was... They were deliberately kept... That's important to understand, because that's part of how this fight is done. The people who want it cleverly worked out with the governments who have to sign on if it's going to happen to do all the negotiating in secret. That was very clever. Why? Because had it been public what they were discussing and what they were planning to do, the public information would have galvanized much of the opposition they were afraid of wakening up. Now, you might say, my goodness, it shouldn't be secret. And you're quite right. But such was the power of the industries that want this, that they were able to overcome the opposition of many to doing it in secret, and they made a concession. Many of the companies that are against it were not kept out, were allowed to be part of the secret negotiations, which is why they have already announced their opposition 
because they can see where this is going and for them, for their business and their profits, they're out there mobilizing opposition and they're the ones who support lots of people on the left hand of the political spectrum who are saying all kinds of things about the end of democracy and the end of real sovereignty that the TPP envisions, and there is a good bit of that, by the way. Uh, but I think it's a mistake to see this as particularly bad for this or that democratic principle. It likely is, but that's not because of the TPP. It's because the people at the table, one group of businesses against a second group of businesses, and in between them, the politicians both sides are funding and basically control, we know enough to know that no matter how that goes, the interests of the environment, the interests of working class people, those are not going to be protected because those interests are not even allowed at the table, let alone uh, becoming aware of what's being done. It's, it's kind of like a chess game where there's only queens and pawns. Yeah. And you're not controlling either of them. <laughs> so, but let's, you, you mentioned, you know, you've got politicians coming down on one side or the other. Um, and in some cases, politicians who were coming down on one side and then switching. Uh, you have mentioned, I, I guess I remember um, your, you gave a, uh, let's see, where, where was it? I can't remember where you gave a speech, but it was called Capitalism, Fantasies and Realities. You, you gave a lecture in somewhere in upstate New York, I think. And uh, you talked about Bernie Sanders being one of the few people who might come out against it, and he did. Um, now, Bernie Sanders is not the Democratic nominee. Uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton is. She spent quite a bit of the last eight years in favor of the TPP, but today she's not in favor of it. What, what, what do we make of that? Well, I think what we have is, again, what we were talking about at the beginning. We're having more and more Americans, how shall I put it politely, disgusted by all of this, angry, personally aggrieved because of what's happened to them in their job lives or their income lives or the debts of their kids or however this plays out in each person's unique life. And they are you know, they're angry and they're bitter and they don't trust these people and th they're against it. It's almost as though if the people who are behind the TPP are the biggest businesses in America and the politicians in their pockets, which is the case, well, then an awful lot of Americans say, well, that's it. I've seen enough. I'm against it. And so when Mr. Sanders, who has other reasons for being against it, when he announced clearly that this is no good and he doesn't want it, what it did was to say to an awful lot of Americans, oh, good, finally a, a politician who's enough on the outs to be pointing the finger at this uh, hustle that's being perpetrated on us and to stand against it. Initially, people like Trump and um, Clinton uh, were at best lukewarm, Trump lukewarm. Clinton was not only supporting the TPP, she was a major booster of it. Uh, partly because her husband had paved the way with NAFTA, but also because, as she once put it, it's the gold standard, her phrase, uh, of international agreements. It was a wonderful, great thing. Another one of these politicians with the win-win approach to it all. Uh, when she saw how much support Sanders got by being against it, when she also saw that Trump began to turn against it, as he has since uh, more and more on the Republican platform as well, she began to realize she might end up in a three-way contest where two of her opponents were bashing this thing to the applause of the majority of the American people. <laughs> and she would be let, you know, literally out there in left field, uh, having been the patron saint of something that was going down in flames. So she did what politicians like her usually do, which is she had a little personal epiphany and changed gears. Um, she's done that many times. She's not the only one. That doesn't make her unique. Um, but, you know, it reminds me to remind the people listening to this that American politicians have long ago 
come to the following conclusion, and this is nearly all of the major ones. The name of the game is to raise enough money so that any position you took in the past that might be an embarrassment today can be drowned out in paid advertisements that will make people forget it, see it in a new light, overwhelm it with an alternative, and that's how you play the game, and they're not going to be held back from supporting it when it's popular to do that and not supporting it when the wind has changed. Hmm. Now, I I should point out that, um, and, and I'm not the only, I'm certainly not the first person to point this out, um, but she doesn't have to support it if it can get passed and rammed through between now and, and January, whatever, January 20th or something. Right? I mean, we've got quite a few months where it could be pushed through and then she can fight against it ver- verbally all she wants. But as long as it doesn't happen until her watch, as long as it doesn't happen on her watch, as long as it happens before it, she can she can just shake her head and say, "Oh, what a terrible train!" But it's here. It's you know that's what we have to deal with. That's what we have to work with. Um, and then she can, you know, basically say, "Well, what what could I do? I wasn't president at the time. It got passed." Do you see that? Yeah, that- yeah so those kinds of maneuvers and and games are regularly played in in Washington. And I'm not here to tell you that that one is out of the question. It isn't. It might be done. Uh, I think the Republicans would be unlikely to make things so terribly convenient for her if she becomes the the, the person who wins the election. Um, I don't know. She's going to have problems not just with whatever the Republicans throw against her, but a strong part of the Democratic Party, the part to her left, is now many of them gone on record pretty much against it, they would have a bit of a harder time uh, raising the money needed to uh, put a veneer over their switcheroo if that's what they're planning to do. Mm-hmm. So she has her work cut out for her, and she is now afraid. Uh, part You can see it in, in her behavior all the time. She's afraid that between the disaffected Americans that are going to vote for Trump and the disaffected Americans that already did vote for Sanders, she does not want to give these people more reason to dislike her, to turn away from her, to vote against her. She has terrible polling numbers in terms of trustworthiness already, uh, and she has to be very careful. And were she to do what you suggest, and were she to be exposed as doing that, which is almost certain to happen, this is a, this is a dangerous game. It, it actually allows me to say something which is important. Whoever wins, whether it's Trump or um, Clinton, and whatever the votes that uh, Johnson and uh, Jill Stein get as third and fourth parties, if it is likely to be, Trump and Clinton, which I believe is the case, either one of them will come into office as one of the weakest newly elected presidents in American history. I mean, these are two people whose numbers in terms of their trustworthiness, their reliability, their honesty, their um, approval on the part of the mass of people is already abysmal. And This is a time of great difficulty for the United States, abroad, at home, economically, politically, culturally. It is a very strange phenomenon to have a person at the top of your political system with that much distaste, disapproval, or even stronger words. And that'll be the case either way. For them to start diddling around with uh, TPP and reversing themselves would be adding fuel to an already scary fire. Hmm. It's also a little bit of an opportunity, you know, assuming that it's either Trump or Clinton, it's an opportunity for the public uh, to maybe exert a little bit of influence through uh, various means. No? Absolutely. Uh, and, and you're going to see that. You're going to see it either way. My guess is that... Um, Again, using the two outliers from this new election scenario in our country, Trump on the one hand and Sanders 
on the other, the temptation for either of them or the people who are like them who come after them to go over the heads of the existing political system, to appeal directly to the mass of people, that temptation is now a thousand times stronger than it was a year ago because those two people who have been dismissed as outside the mainstream, as at the margins, as unelectable, have proven the opposite of all of that. And there's going to be a strong temptation to say there are millions of Americans out there who support that kind of thing on the left in its way, on the right in its way. And we're not going to work through the normal channels of Washington politics, of the two big party establishments, because they want to lock us all up in the little game they've had going for 50 years. But that's not the game for us. That's the game that excludes us. So we're not going to, we're going to go right over it. We're going to see a politics that is anti-establishment and going directly to the mass of people, which modern technology, social media, and so on make much easier than it used to be anyway. Uh, look, the example is England. The entire establishment, both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, overwhelmed the British people with the arguments about why staying in Europe was a win-win and voting against staying in Europe was a lose-lose. They even brought uh, President Obama over there before the election to throw his weight behind it, which, by mistaken miscalculation, he did. And the end result was that, if you pardon my expression, the British people said, wow, we're not even that interested in whether we're in or out of the European Union. It doesn't matter all that much. But this vote has become an opportunity for us to thumb our nose at the establishment of both parties, the comfortable London operation that runs this country, and we're not going to miss an opportunity and they defeated them soundly, changing British history forever. I think the United States is right behind them. The form it'll take here is different, but the same pressures, the same anger has been building here. And it seems obvious to me that the only surprise will be the particular moment it expresses itself. Hmm. Well, Richard, I've kept you on the phone Longer than I I said I would, but I did want to give you a chance because uh, I know you've got somewhere you've got to be. Um, I wanted to talk about Democracy at Work. Good. Democracy at Work is very simple. It's an organization. It's about four years old. It is uh, focused on the radio program Economic Update that is played around the country on 63 stations these days. Um, it is building organizations in many American cities now, and it believes, to make this as blunt as I can, that the problem is not immigration or TPP or these other things, important as they all are, that there's something more seriously wrong in this country. We have an economic system, capitalism, which doesn't work anymore. It used to be said of capitalism, well, it's got its flaws, but it delivers the goods. The truth of it is, that over the last 30 years, for most Americans, capitalism delivers the bads. Over-indebted students, insecure jobs, declining benefits, stagnant wages. I mean, you can go on and on, and most Americans sense it, feel it, see it in their daily life. What we have not had, and what democracy at work is about, is an attempt to say, okay, it is a systematic problem, and here's the system that's at fault. It's the way we organize the production of the goods and services we all depend on, food, clothing, shelter. We organize it in something called capitalist enterprises, institutions that have a tiny group of people at the top. We call them major shareholders, the individuals who own the bulk of shares. And just to remind everyone, 1% of the shareholders own about two-thirds of all the shares. The shareholders decide who's on the board of directors of every corporation, usually 15 or so people, and they make all the decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits. All the rest of us, we go to work. We do what we're told, where we're told, how we're told. And at the end of the day, whatever we've helped to produce with our brains and our muscles 
instantaneously belongs to the person who hired us. They will decide what's done with it. They will decide how to use the profits. Our job is to go home, have a meal, go to sleep, and come back and do what we're told again. If we don't like this system, which we don't anymore because it's not working for most of us, then we've got to change the way our businesses are organized. And this is our point. We've got to bring democracy to the workplace. That's why we call ourselves democracy at work. Businesses should have been democratically organized from the beginning. If we're a nation that genuinely believes in democracy, as we insist we are, well then, democracy belongs in the workplace because that's where adults spend most of their life. Five out of seven days, best hours of the day, you're at work. If you believe in democracy, it should have been there from the beginning, but the truth, the hard truth, is it's never been there. We allow a tiny group of people at the top to make all the decisions that shape our lives, what we're paid, whether we even have a job, whether the job moves to China, whether the profits are used in a way that's good for the community or just for the shareholders. All of those crucial decisions made by a tiny group of people who are in no way accountable to us, the working people who are the majority. That's got to change. The root of our problem is we never finished the so-called democratic revolution. We made our political leaders accountable, but we never made our economic leaders accountable. That has to change, and out of that will come a new set of economic realities. Just to give a couple of examples. If workers together democratically, that's one worker, one vote, at a work site, whether it has 50 people or 5,000 people, if they got together to vote, you think they'd close their workplace and move to China? It would never happen. That would be destroying their own jobs. If they got together to decide how to distribute the profits, which after all, they all help to produce, do, they think you, do you think they'd give a handful of top executives multi-million dollar salaries a year while the rest of them can't send their kids to college? It would never happen. So if you're worried about, for example, jobs leaving the country, or if you're worried about the grotesque inequalities of income capitalism produces, Democratizing the enterprise is a real serious way to address that problem. And that's what's missing. Neither Trump nor Clinton is doing anything other than making a little adjustments here or there, but not going at these fundamental dimensions of a system that is making a smaller and smaller number of Americans rich at the expense of the livelihoods of the vast majority. Final point, the most famous institution in the world that studies world poverty is called Oxfam, O-X-F-A-M, based in the United Kingdom. They issue a report every year. And in February of this year, 2016, their latest one, they came up with a statistic that for me speaks volumes. Here it is. The 62 richest people in the world, by the way, most of them are Americans, not all, but most. The 62 richest people together own more wealth than the bottom half of the population of this planet, roughly three and a half billion with a B people. Let me say that again. The 62 richest individuals, you know some of their names, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, folks like that. The 62 richest together have more wealth than the bottom half of the human race. Now, you'd have to go back to ancient Egypt and the pharaohs to get a level of inequality like that. We live in an economic system that produces that kind of inequality. You can't expect there to be a successful middle class. You can't be surprised at the closing in of your economic horizons, uh, which is happening to most Americans, if you permit a system that generates and celebrates such inequality. I am guessing by now, uh, listeners probably are chomping at the bit to find out how they can, uh, where they can get more information. Um, I do want to say that the website is democracyatwork.info, I-N-F-O. So it's democracyatwork.info. What are they going to find there? Uh, a mass of material, but 
let me really urge your listeners to go there. It's all one word, democracyatwork.info. You'll find their interviews. You'll find their written documents. You'll find their films, entire classes, an endless treasure trove of material, uh, a complete archive of five years of the weekly radio program about these subjects. Uh, all of it is available to you 24-7, no charge whatsoever, ever for anything on there. It's a treasure trove of materials that we put together precisely so that interested people can make whatever use of it they see fit. And I'm seeing here that there's also a Find a Democracy at Work action group section. So if you are listening and wondering how you can get hooked up with people who are as riled up as you are, uh, find the uh, the group's uh, page to, to, to locate a... a, right. a, action, a democracy at Work action groups. We will immediately get in touch with you and hook you up with other people that share these views and that want to make some changes. All right. Well, obviously, people want to hook up with you right away, so I yeah. should probably let them do that. But uh, Richard Wolf, I want to say thank you so very much for taking for being so generous with your time. Um, I know we'll talk again, and uh, in the meantime, I guess we will all be watching this campaign season closely. It's my pleasure, and uh, be glad to talk with you again in the future. All right. Take care, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was episode number one of Growl here at the Greylock Glass. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Richard Wolf. Uh, you can check out his show, Economic Update with Richard Wolf, every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time by going to greylockglass.com slash live and clicking the player. Um, I don't know for sure what we're going to have coming up next week, but I guarantee it'll be a hot button issue. Starting us off today was uh, a tune by the name of Money uh, from Zion Train off their brand new release, Versions. And you'll be able to hear that off and on, uh, that whole album actually, um, both on our reggae show, which we will be finding a home for on our schedule pretty soon, and just generally speaking in the eclectic mix that we roll most of the time. Again, thanks for tuning in to this first episode, and I hope you come back for more. Bye-bye. Hey, really?